midnight Listening to KKUP Cupertino here at 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at KKUP.org. So, you are just listening to The Swing Show, which is an awesome, awesome show. Um, and now you're going to listen to some poetry radio. Um, today, I have an interview with Joseph Ross, and I was just telling Raz that. I connected with uh, this guy on Instagram who is a sound sort of archivist and he <laughs> he specializes in 1970s funk and I happen to really love funk. It, it takes me back to the family barbecues back in the day when I was a little girl. So we're going to switch some gears here. I know you've been cooling it down with the swing show, but we're going to move into 1970s funk here with uh, Lakeside. So I'm going to play a song and then we'll get to poetry.
All right. So that's Lakeside. Um, so you're listening to Poetry Radio, which is the second longest running poetry radio show in America called Out of Our Minds. And I'm your host, Rochelle Escamilla, a.k.a. Poetita. And I'm here every Wednesday night from 8 to 9 p.m. bringing you um, whatever awesome music I can find and whatever awesome poets I can find. And this week we have Joseph Ross. Joseph Ross is the author of three books of poetry, Ache, which is forthcoming, Gospel of Dust, and Meeting Bone Man. His poetry has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the Los Angeles Times, Tidal Basin Review, um, and many others. His work appears in anthologies as well. Um, He recently served as the 23rd Poet in Residence for the Howard County Poetry and Literature Society just outside of Washington, D.C. He's a six-time Pushcart Prize nominee, um, and... He he's just an amazing guy. And um, and I really had the pleasure of interviewing him. Uh, I do my interviews on Sunday mornings in my apartment uh, in Aromas, California, and I've got some some birds, some (laughs) some little spice finches in the apartment. So they're always tweeting in the background. And uh, I think it's kind of nice. It's a nice place for poetry. So here we go. Here's my interview with Joseph Ross. Okay, so I'm having a little bit of technical difficulties here with um, this. So we're going to switch the drive and see if that doesn't help us out a little bit. If not, I'm going to put some music back on for you. So let's go. See you. Won't 
All right, so as much as we like those jams from Lakeside, I'm going to try and uh, do the Joseph Ross interview again. So here we go. Let's hope this works this time. So you're Joseph Ross, and you're a poet, and you live over in Washington, D.C. Tell me a little bit yeah. about yourself. Yes. Yeah, I'm a poet. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm a teacher also. Mm -hmm. uh, I teach at Gonzaga College High School, a, a Jesuit boys' school mm -hmm. uh, in D.C., right uh, down by the U.S. Capitol. Mm-hmm. I've been there for, uh, I've just finished four years there. Mm. Um, and I teach American literature and creative writing poetry. And I just sort of been like madly in love with both of them. <laughs> uh, really rediscovered American lit um, in teaching there. I had taught it years before. Mm. I moved to DC in 2000 mm -hmm. and um, started the writing center at Carroll High School. Mm -hmm. Was there for 10 years, taught at American University for two, and then... Um, and then went to Gonzaga, but I'm originally a Golden Stater. Oh, um, are you? Yeah, I was born in well, I was born in Pomona. Oh, wow! Uh, just east of Los Angeles, yeah. Yeah. And grew up out there, and went to Loyola Marymount University in West LA as an undergrad. Yeah. So, so that's kind of uh, you know when I was reading your book, The Human Gospel, I was you know reading about some poems that you have about Tupac or with Tupac as a character. Yeah. Um, and a couple of other things. And I thought, this guy knows a lot about some stuff that I know about. So maybe we're from a similar space. Yeah, yeah, good, good. I um, hope so. <laughs> yeah, so so what's it like uh, uh, teaching in Washington, D.C.? You know, um, coming from California, you know, the impressions that we get about education in D.C. is that, you know, it's just awful schooling and, and it's difficult and there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of um, difficulty out there. So yeah. maybe you can set some records straight or give us a, a, a better view of things. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I have, I have not taught in the public schools here. Mm. I've done lots of workshops and stuff in different public schools here, but um, I think some of what you just described is true. I think that a lot of that negative stuff, is a little bit overstated. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think it's ever, it's probably never as bad as it sounds and it's often never as good as it sounds, you know? <laughs> uh, so it's somewhere down the middle. Uh, the poverty here is is bad. It's entrenched. The city is gentrifying, um, which sort of you know adds an extra sting to the poverty. I think in certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, I taught it when I first moved here. As I said, I taught at Carroll High School, which is a Catholic high school, but it's a school that people often associate that with very elite students. And mm -hmm. the one I'm at now is a little more like that. But mm -hmm. Carol uh, was very much for students from the district. Uh, it was 90 plus percent black mm -hmm. all the years that I was there. Uh, and it was a beautiful place. I mean, I, I loved it, you know, and it was a good it was a good school. Um, all the kids went to college or nearly all went to college. Lots went to went to HBCUs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's a it's an it's an interesting city. Th th those were kids who had, you know, some opportunity. Uh, somebody was paying for them somehow to go to a to not go to a public school. Right. The public schools have been reforming, though, and I think they've been a lot better in the last seven or eight years. Um, there was a very controversial new uh, superintendent of schools some years ago, Michelle Ree. Mm -hmm. Very controversial. I think she had the right ideas, but she had she was she had no charm to, to, to pull off those kinds of changes. <laughs> Seriously. She appeared on the front of time magazine holding a broom. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so wow. it was like, you know, so she was gotten rid of not, not very long, maybe just a few years. She began these changes, which were painful. And then her assistant who was really a workhorse, kind of a behind the scenes person has been the chancellor for the last seven or eight years. And, and she's really implemented the same changes but with a lot more grace and kindness and listening mm. to people. And so I think they're getting a lot better. And, yeah. and DC as a city is great. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the monuments. I, you know, it's a great city of neighborhoods, um, really interesting neighborhoods. It's a, it's really a great place to live. Well, that's, yeah, I that's awesome. I mean, yeah. I've only, I've only ever been to DC once for a protest. <laughs> oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I, I've, um, I, I sort of thought that it would be a wonderful city to explore. Um, so what's it like then? So what do you like about it? Well, I mean, in, in all honesty, for me, one of the strongest things and things I love is the poetry community here. Mm. It's a really magnificent poetry community. 
a very supportive community. People are as excited about somebody else doing well as they are about their own work doing well. Yeah, it's really, really supportive. Um, Not long after I moved here, um, well, uh, right when I moved here, I called uh, E. Ethelbert Miller, Uh uh, kind of the dean of DC poets, you know, very well-known African-American poet. And I just said, he, he didn't know me from Adam. And I just said, you know, I've read lots of your work. I'm starting a writing center at Carroll High School. What should I know? Yeah. And he said, let's meet at this bakery on Sunday morning. <laughs> wow. Seriously. And we've been friends ever since. Wow. I just yeah. aired I just aired an interview with uh, him and Gwendolyn Brooks. He did an interview with Gwendolyn Brooks back in like 1987, I think, or 86. At the uh, Library of Congress? Yes, yes. Yes, I used that in my class. Oh. <laughs> because so, uh, <laughs> that's one of the few places where you can see her reciting We Real Cool. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was I was so excited. And he's actually he's actually um, we were at the same in the same space once. And I thought, oh, gosh, he's so amazing. I really like his work. Um, Me too. Yeah. I'm I, I'm very fortunate to uh, be involved with the Willow Books uh, publishing press. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which... that's right. And they did his they've just done his new um, The Collected Works. Yes. They did your. they did a book of yours. Yes. My first yeah. book, actually. Yeah. Good. So, so I'm really fortunate to be part of that, and it's really a press that that prides itself on making, being resistant and making change in the world um, by focusing on writers of color exclusively in order to produce nuanced stories, which doesn't often happen in the publishing market. Even if right. writers of color get published in the publishing market, often the story is the same old story with the same old tropes and the same old characters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really exciting. So yeah, so you get to be part of this really great scene in Washington D.C. and you're teaching at a high school. Yeah. So so tell me a little bit about your poetry and where your poetry comes from, and and then we'll get into it. Sure. Um, initially, I think uh, my poetry came from um, really trying to grapple with mortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sort of the the. The, the deeper human question that, you know, we're not going to be here forever. Um, and that's a, that's kind of a, a bit of a drumbeat beneath a lot of my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ha- as a result of that, knowing we're not going to be here forever, then the quality of our being here, how it is, how we are at, when we are here alive, uh, has really sort of taken over. And um, I find myself writing lots of work with, very social justice, very uh, conscious social justice themes, writing a lot about race, um, a lot about, I mean, people sort of say, you know, sort of civil rights poetry. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't get too nervous about some of those yeah. terms. I, I don't know that that's like the best term, but um, it, to me, I think of it more in terms of how, how we are as humans together. Right. Uh, and that has to do with power and powerlessness. It has to do with race uh, you know, I'm a white man, so I have nothing. I have lots to learn. That's that's the stance that I try to take. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that my work is like that. I, I heard Frank Walker um, say one time that he's made a deliberate decision to write about themes of social justice, that, that that's what he wants to do and what he will do. Mm. Uh, and I never really heard anybody say it quite that plainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I, I, I think I'm, I'm a bit on, I come on, I'm happy to be on that same page with him, I think. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, your, your, um, your book, which I have in front of me, the gospel or gospel of rust begins with, um, you know, all of these poems that are dedicated to, um, people who were part of the resistance or civil rights movement. And, yes. and I thought that was very interesting to open up a book that you know maybe the gospel the gospel of dust has this these sort of very um biblical or the human gospel the biblical sort of um references but then i go in and then there's rosa parks on the first page yeah yeah that's what i was hoping for um i i was a catholic priest for a few years oh wow and so the and i was raised catholic and so those a lot of those biblical images uh, are really powerful to me. I think they're powerful for a lot of people, 
uh, regardless of where one's faith is, and, and my faith is largely in the realm of questions, mm. but the images st are still powerful to me. So one of the things I was thinking, even with that very first section of poems uh, about, I, I don't know, sort of holy people, mm. is, uh, you know, like a, a bit of a book of, to open with a kind of a book of the saints. Mm. Uh, so... So how do you not start with Rosa Parks? <laughs> that is, that's so cool. I mean, that's really uh -huh. cool. I like that a lot. Um, will you read? Will you read a couple of poems from that first section? Maybe if you have a favorite or. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, well, let me read the Rosa Parks poem. Great. Um, For her sitting, Rosa Parks, nineteen thirteen two thousand five. For her, sitting became a sacrament the act made holy by being itself, the refusal, the straightening of the lips to clarify there is no humor here, no one is playing with anyone, the refolding of her hands, kitchen smooth, battle ready, the deployment of her purse further into her lap, the sedition of settling back into the bus seat a bit deeper because she has arrived at her destination. The looking into the eye of the bus driver, then the police, and the looking away, giving voice to a magnificent claim to hear, to this patch of seat, to singing a resounding yes that means no. It's fantastic. Really Thank great. I, I'm fascinated by when an ordinary person makes a decision that is sort of extraordinary, you know, or has extraordinary consequences. And, uh, you know, she, she was a bit of an activist and she was in the NAACP and all of that. Uh, but by and large, you know, she was not, you know, she was a, she was a very ordinary person, a seamstress and a volunteer with the NAACP. And, uh, and yet look at this decision, you know, right. that then coincides with this young 20 something Martin King coming to, to Montgomery Right. Uh, you know, and, and on it went. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's very interesting to me. You know, over the years, you hear people try and sort of um, disqualify the works of some people saying, oh, well, well, she was, it was part of a scheme to put her on the bus. And that was part right. of this. Well, of course, you have to have plans when you do civil, civil resistance, you know, you know, exactly. civil disobedience. You can't just, you know, you're not just going to do it. Right. <laughs> Right. We'd love to think that it's just magic, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really careful planning and hard work and, and cunning in a good way. Cunning, I think. Yeah. And yeah. and to sit, I mean, just to think about that decision to sit on that bus and your poem does it so well, the kitchen smooth hands and oh, gosh. And then just the moving the the, the purse deeper into the lap. Oh, that's really great. Really great. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I've, se I've seen women do that on buses, right? You know, <laughs> yes. The, the, you know, sort of shuffling with their coat a little bit and the purse deeper into the lap, kind of a secure, I ain't going nowhere kind of, kind of, a, <laughs> kind of a gesture, uh, which in that context is, I want to say is sacramental. You know, it's, there's, a, there's a holiness there a kind of a sanctity there because of what that act is doing. It's about um, going back to what we were saying before. It's about improving the way that we are alive with one another. Right. And that's what I'm trying to find. Yeah. yeah. Right. And sometimes it's really hard. I, I mean, I'm a younger generation, but it's hard for me to imagine the world um, without the works of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez. It's hard for me to imagine a world without it, but but that world existed and it was very real and we have new problems today, but yes, it's just, um, it feels like it would be impossible to imagine an America where Rosa Parks, before Rosa Parks and before Martin Luther King, you know? Yes. And it would be impossible. I think in some ways, uh, you know, to imagine a black lives matter or other c groups, you know, sort of like that without Rosa Parks and Martin King coming before them, yeah. you know? Um, I know they're different and I, you know, I know times are different and strategies are different and all of that. Um, but we are connected, you know, in, in various ways. So yes. it's good, I think. Yeah. Yes. And, you and, know, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just, you know, I think about uh, my, my family. My grandfather has it. Uh, we have a history of activism, at least in the, in the small little area where we're from, as far yeah. as migrant workers are concerned. And my grandfather 
was always, um, you know, he always said that one of the most important things about about being an activist or making trying to make change is that you have to acknowledge the people that help you on the way. And one of the things is, is you know, he's, he used to say that uh, if it wasn't for los hippies, los white hippies <laughs> out yes. in San Francisco, his, the, the things that he needed to have signed, the petitions and the, and the lawyers and, and the things that had to happen in order for migrant workers to have rights would not have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we all... You know, it it it's all it's all about connections. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, let me read one more than from that section. Can I sure, read the one sure. about Cesar Chavez? Yes, yeah. please. And it it sort of does the, or tries to do the same thing using some of those same images. Really, if if bending is a sacred act, mm. uh, Cesar Chavez, nineteen twenty seven, nineteen ninety three. If bending is a sacred act then your back and legs are relics of a holiness known only in fields. If hope is like holy water, quenching tongue and fist, then workers can dream of loving the dirt on their fingers. If one can break open a globe of lettuce with hands like maps and share the pieces with those marching in a demonstration the size of a conscience, then your quiet smile breaking across the brown field of your face is just the night prayer every farm worker who ever stooped in a field has been waiting for. Nice. Cesar nice. Chavez. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Um, Cesar Chavez is an, is, is an interesting, um, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm Chicana, but mm-hmm. we weren't really taught about him in school. You know, I, I really wasn't taught about him and I didn't learn about Cesar Chavez until I was in college, which was very interesting for me. Yeah. And I, I think I barely did either. I mean, I, I'm not even sure I learned about Rosa Parks in high school, to tell you the truth. Mm. Um, that was in Southern, and I went to high school in Southern California. Mm. Uh, maybe a little bit about Ch- Cesar Chavez because of the work in California and mm-hmm. don't buy grapes and, you know, the, the some of the boycotts and stuff. But right. Yeah, when I um, well, I'm I'm reading right now uh, a book called We Are Charleston mm-hmm. by um, Marjorie Wentworth, who's mm-hmm. the poet laureate of South Carolina, and uh, Herb Frazier, who's a a, a South Car- longtime Black South Carolina journalist, and Bernard Powers, who's a, a, a scholar in South Carolina, and it's like you know, how did I not know any of this? The sort mm-hmm. of the history of the Mother Emanuel Church, the tying all the history of slavery in South Carolina into the, into the shooting at the church. And um, I'm just always amazed when I discover something and I think, and all the expensive education crammed into my head (laughs) and somehow, somehow, you know, learning about Rosa Parks was not important. Well, I think, and I, you know, and I think that's the thing, that's the reason why I'm here doing the show. And that's the reason why there are people who are teaching, uh, creative writing and literature in the ways that they are, which is to really work at trying to give students and people uh, an opportunity to hear the stories of people who have been left out. Yeah, exactly. They've just yeah. been left out. I mean, I don't, I don't know how malicious any of it is. I don't know if, you know, there's this big conspiracy to just keep the stories of brown people out of everything. We know yeah. that there's a system of oppression and that, that has to do with it. But it's just so then so then we have to fight against it. So then we have to go against the tide and and find those brown people and those black people and those, you know, whatever people. Yes. And find their stories. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's exactly right. Um, in the American literature class that I teach, we start the very first text we read is Columbus's letter concerning his first voyage. And it's a letter to the king and queen of Spain. Mm-hmm. It's basically a sales pitch. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. We can take these people, you know, we can do this. This is going to be easy and talks about the lagoons and the depth of the bays and all the gold and all this kind of stuff. Um, and one of the questions I love to ask, you know, so we talk about the text, you know, what does he say? How, you know, make sure they, you know, they understand what they have read, but then to say, who does, who, who's silent here? Mm. Who doesn't get to speak? Mm. And then to sort of unfold that theme as the rest of the course goes on, I think is really helpful, at least is the, is the approach that I take. And I'm glad I've, I'm given enough freedom to to take it that way. And I think it's important, exactly as you said, to then then to find ways to bring up those voices 
the people who are talked about metaphorically even in Columbus's letter, uh, not, not too long, we'll begin to hear from their voices. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, and, and it's really, and it's really difficult too, as we move forward in America and I watch, you know, my culture or people from my culture become assimilated into the sort of consumer American culture and they begin to lose the elements that I remember from my childhood and other cultures probably do the same that in this process of American assimilation, we are like losing parts of our original cultures. Sure. Sure. You know, yeah. and I ask my, my husband cause he's, he's, his last name is Sweeney, Irish Catholic from uh, Western Pennsylvania. I say, what yeah. what cultures do you have from you know Irish culture? And he says, well, we make you know cabbage and <laughs> a couple other things <laughs> around St. Patty's Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, corned beef and cabbage, and that's about it. And so, um, so how about you? What cultural elements do you have in your life, or what what sort of guides you? Yeah, well, my family is uh, both Italian and Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, my father's parents, my grand, my paternal grandparents came here from Sicily uh, just after the turn of the century in, ni- in 1990s. Mm. Uh, and my mother's family came from Ireland uh, a, a couple of generations earlier. Um, but both, both of those cultures were alive uh, in our house as I was growing up. More the Italian culture, probably. Uh-huh. Um, and... And because they didn't ever try to teach us Italian, which in some ways I, now I kind of wish they had. I'm sure I would have re- resisted at the time as oh, a kid. Yeah. But yeah, it would have been torture. <laughs> um, but one thing that I have gone to, I suppose, myself is the, the poetic tradition within the Irish culture. Mm. Um, and that's a very strong socially active, uh, you know, politically active poetic culture. Um, you know, the beginning, well, I mean, people, I know Yeats is kind of the icon, but I mean, beginning with someone like Yeats, whose, whose work was wrapped around the Irish revolution, you know, the Mm. Irish rebellion uh, of a hundred years ago this year. Wow. So that's, that's been a a strong part of my background. Um, More so my, my father was um, an organizer for a time. He was an organizer for the United Steelworkers in Southern California. Oh, wow. And so I was really raised from that perspective, you know, from that every economic or political decision or, you know, statement somebody makes, it has to be followed up with the question, for whom? Ah. You know, so this is a great policy. Well, for whom? You know, like um, to really see things from the bottom up, from the perspective of people who who need that job, who need those benefits, right. who need, need the wage to be a just one. Um that's that's totally in my that's in my blood from my folks. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so. Well, we're working from the same page. That's for sure. Good. <laughs> I, I I sort of thought so. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, let's read another couple of your poems. Sure. Uh, something else from Gospel of Dust. Um. Sure. Let's go with that. Um. Let me. Uh, You mentioned some of the uh, Tupac Shakur poems, and in some ways, because of my religious background, I um, so I imagined these characters in one Tupac Shakur, imagined Tupac Shakur as a priest, right? Mm-hmm. And these different gestures then. Um, so here's, uh, if Tupac Shakur was a priest, blessing. Mm. If Tupac Shakur was a priest, he would raise his arms, welcoming us to our own future with a prayer and a slap. <clears throat> Excuse me. He would intone a blessing ancient as quarters tossed against a curb in a reckless gamble to win hope, to win even another quarter, to just stay in the game a little longer. (laughs) He would pray that we might be made holy by the knowledge that some prisoners set free at last stay inside on Friday nights for fear of history repeating itself. Finally, he would bless us by tracing in the air, not a cross, but a human shape, like the lines of chalk that once surrounded his own leaking body. Mm. Wow. So trying to use those, some of those, those religious gestures, the blessing, the raising of arms, the, you know, um, but putting them in a, in a very street kind of context. um, Right. 
I don't know, putting things together that don't normally, we don't normally see, think of as together. No, I, I really like it. I mean, I really enjoyed the imagery. And that's what I'm, I actually enjoyed throughout your book is this sort of uh, juxtaposition between the sort of um, sacred and the, the modern, which is really yeah. cool. And I hope, thank you. And I, and I hope that what I'm trying to do there is to say it's all sacred. Mm. You know, it's all sacred. It's not all good. You know, everything isn't good or easy, um, but every, but everything is sacred. I mean, um, if tossing quarters against the curb is the main ritual gesture in some people's lives, maybe we got to take it more seriously. Maybe we got to take them more seriously. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's sort of uh, it's all sacred is kind of the. Uh, same in the same conversation with it's all relevant for me like these these images these pictures these stories that may not be part of mainstream culture's consciousness are an important uh, artifact in our historical mm, in our shared historic literary literary history i guess yes yes that's right i think that's right yeah yeah um all right. So yeah. how about your other books? Let's talk about what your other books are about. And, and, uh, yeah, well, I have, um, I have meeting bone man is my first book and, um, it really was a response to, uh, the death of my mother. Okay. Uh, and so it was big questions about mortality. Um, and that work continues to, I mean, that theme, as I said, continues to find its way. Um, and I have an, a, a book coming out in March uh, this mm-hmm. coming year called Ache, or March of next year, 2017, okay. called Ache. And I'd love to read a couple of things from that. Yes. Um, uh, and who's who's going to publish that one? Sibling Rivalry Press. Oh, okay. I've heard of them. From Little, they're down in Little Rock. Yeah. Um, they kind of began as a as a uh, LGBT press. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if they, I don't think they ever would have described themselves as ex- exclusively that. But right. Uh, they began in that in that way, and um, so I'm really happy that, that they sort of broadened out a little bit. But I'm really happy um, that they're doing this book. Um, it doesn't really have a lot of GLBT themes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's but it, it 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 carries forth a lot of the some of the same themes that were that are in Gospel of Dust. Um, it, one thing it does is that it kind of grabs my I, I'm a I'm a latecomer to jazz. Mm. Um, and I thank my friend Fred Joyner, who's in Mali these mm-hmm. days, who's a poet here in D.C., for kind of turning me on the jazz. And and so there's a, a, a bunch of poems um, about John Coltrane songs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'd love to read one of those. Sure. Uh, one is about Dr. King, as a matter of fact, because at the last year of his life, John Coltrane wrote a song called Reverend King, um, which is a little bit free jazz. And so it can grate on people's ears a little bit. It's, mm. it's, it's, uh, but it's, it's beautiful, I think. Um, and I think it's interesting in that it, it sort of, I can sort of hear Dr. King's life in the, through the song. So what's the song called again? John Coltrane's song is called Reverend King. Okay. And so the poem is called on John Coltrane's Reverend King. Okay. The tenor sax sings the concrete of Auburn Avenue, grandparents' front porch. It whispers Morehouse and tries to read music it hasn't learned yet. It gathers into a man's voice to chant Boston. Here the sax weaves a love song, falling over itself for a rhythm that could carry it, outlive it. It deepens and moves south to a Montgomery of empty buses, kitchen prayers, bombs, threatened and real. Then drums rise to an angry Birmingham. The verses hum jailed. Their tones are letters, grace notes. Staccato police batons slice the air like the conductors of an insane choir. Coltrane's breath rushes through the saxophone now. The tune terrors in Vietnam. It prays scared in Selma. Its notes are water hoses, dog teeth, indifference. It sings symphony in Washington, chaos in Chicago. 1963 was cruel to this melody, this unfinished lunch counter where four little girls sit side by side and eat nothing. So finally he puts down the sax as it fills with tears unplayable. He takes up the bass clarinet because it sounds more like fury, like staring down a president. This song knows harmony. It is a choir called Watts. It sings riot in a new tongue, the language of the unheard. 
This song swirls now. It fills the world house with a straight-spined melody. This tune sings garbage men who are men. This rhythm has walked to a mountaintop. It tastes like a promise. So it clears its throat and soars, singing Memphis. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to try to uh, find the song and and possibly play it during the show now. Oh, OK, good. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, I should be able to tell you what album it's on. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I'm sure I can find it. Yeah, I have it in my iTunes. Even I could I could message it to you later. Yeah, sure. Um, shoot. Yeah, it's not coming to my head right now. That's OK. It's, it's a later album. It's 1967, I think. OK. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd yeah, be really cool. our listeners, our listeners really love jazz um, at the radio station where this uh, show airs. So. Oh, okay, good. And that's it's KKUP. Yeah, KKUP Cupertino out in the Bay Area. It's a forty-five-year-old radio station that started in someone's garage, and it's still going. That's awesome. Well, hello, KKUP and Cupertino. I'm I'm psyched to be talking to the to uh, the Bay Area again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I spent I spent a summer in Berkeley a um, hundred years ago <laughs> when I was in the seminary, and I just loved it. I I was taking African theology classes and playing basketball every day. It was a, <laughs> African, it was a good, African theology classes. That's crazy. It was a good summer. <laughs> Yeah, one of the best. Well, the Bay Area is changing. I mean, it is not the same. I was here um, maybe 10, 11 years ago when I was at San Jose State University doing my undergrad. And and then I left to Pittsburgh and went all over the world. But uh, when I came back, it's just, it's not the same. Everything's Hmm. just different. There's a lot of gentrification. Rent is really, really, really high. Yeah, you hear um, about that even out here. You hear about it from San Francisco and and the Bay Area generally. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. It's it's insane. And um, you know, there's a couple of revivals. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Luis Valdez. He did um, La Bamba and sure, yes, yeah. Um, he's doing a lot of work with San Jose State, and they're sort of reviving the theater, the sort of theater experience in San Jose but he oh, did okay. he did this talk and he was saying that when he remembers San Jose it was like a cultural um sort of bright light little town where you can go to the theater and the cinema and there were all of these different you know low riders driving by and it was mm. just this 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 nightlife you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but it's not the same yeah well, and when I think of San Jose State, I mean, I was growing, I grew up in the, in the Southern California, obviously, but mm-hmm. knew the North a little bit, but I really think of um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Oh, yeah. Or even just of the great track tradition at, uh, at San Jose State, the, the, the School of Speed or something they called it, something like that, I think. Yeah. Back well, we've got yeah. the big statues of Tommy and Carlo out uh, there. Yeah. That kind of like in the icon, the iconic photograph yeah yeah but despite despite that that sort of history you know there's still a lot of issues um there's there's still a lot of really interesting issues that occur in san jose with regards to race and all of that kind of stuff so i don't know you know america's a really interesting place and it's interesting to watch how things are changing and moving sometimes yeah. it's scary um but i don't know i'm hopeful for the future how about you I am hopeful. I'm always hopeful. I mean, I, and I work with young people, you know, who are smart and try and, and so you can't, I can't help but be hopeful, but I, it does make me question, I don't know how we think about how history moves or something like, like, I feel like what's under what I'm hearing underneath what you say about said about San Jose, for example, is that like, you'd think, you'd think it would be better. You know, you'd think we'd learned, you know? Yeah. And I think that about a million things about about America. But I think my, what I'm coming to have some sense of is that maybe that's not how it works. You know, <laughs> like we have to, I, I wish like heck it were linear and straight, you know, like that, but I just have a feeling it's, it's learn it again, learn it again, learn it again. Um, I, I worry that it's more like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I hope that's not hopeless or no, but I just, yeah, I, well, I think there, there's, aren't, aren't there a lot of places where you'd say, you know, man, we look at all that this happened. We should have figured that out. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be fighting this again, you know? <laughs> 
it's and almost as if every generation has a new memory of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not the way. That's not the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> I didn't think. Well, yeah. I mean, it's 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 really. Um, but but I think for me, as I'm getting older, and I'm sort of watching this happen to me, is like when I was younger and you know, really called myself an activist, really got out there with the Occupy movement. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was some frackers coming into San Benito County where I'm from. And I jumped on that train right away. But mm-hmm. after, you know, all of these really big battles that I feel like I've been part of now, it's almost as if I have a return to the the family and a return to the home and to the small spaces mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. feel like I just want some calm for a while. Yeah. Well, I think that makes good sense. And, you know, I don't think you can do much out in in the larger world. Or you, I don't know that we can do much good out in the larger world unless the, the home fires are sort of well tended, you know. Mm. I think some maybe some people can do something for a while, you know, but I think that in the end, it it, it, it begins with the person and it grows from there or something like that. I don't I um, but good. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you're and maybe it's a back and forth, you know out in the, the public world of protest and movement and and then for a time back into the, the quieter sort of refreshment of the family and then back out into the, it may be a kind of an ebb and flow like that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So did you grow up with poetry in the house? Uh, yes. Well, I grew up with poetry and with a lot of books. I mean, I, I don't know that, I don't think my folks, we had kind of very standard poetry stuff um, and even like, Reader's Digest poetry uh, collections, <laughs> you know, pretty pretty basic stuff. That's cool. um, but huge readers. I mean, my folks both on both sides of their bed, you know, stacks of books, and we were a week, you know, weekly caravan to the public library, and um, we just understood that was how you got through the world. You you read. Wow. Um, and I wasn't always great, in, terribly great in school, but but I did love to read, um, and. Yeah, started writing poetry, uh, I mean, in high school in a very angsty way that lots of high school students write po- begin to write poetry. Of course. And and then just you know, kind of more seriously the older I got and um, have been, you know, at it now for a while, a little while. Yeah. So, yeah. so who are some of your um, sort of fa- favorite poets or your poetic lineage? Yeah. Um, That's a hard Martina- question. <laughs> Well, there are people that I read that I, that I think of like, who do I go back to? Yes. Um, I go back. I, I, I can't imagine living without Lucille Clifton's poetry. Mm. I can't imagine living without Martina Spada's poetry. Mm. Um, I think that both of them in a, in often sort of short poems, uh, but, you know, super compressed. Uh, their poems are also very public and are and are about the world, even when they're about something that happened at the kitchen table, you know, they they find ways to link, to show that everything is sacred. Again, I think it's part of that same idea. Um, I mean, further back, you know, I, I remember really being moved in high school by, by studying William Butler Yeats, mm. by reading Shakespeare in high school. I remember thinking, man, look at what those words are doing. Mm. I just couldn't believe it, you know? And, and when I went to LMU there in Los Angeles, uh, had a couple of, had some great teachers, especially who taught the romantics. So people mm. like William Blake, the British romantics, William Blake and Shelley. I remember just thinking, this is amazing stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I think discovering more of American literature once I began teaching it. Mm. Uh, so find, you know, oh, wow, well, last week even I um, made my first sort of serious trip to New York City. Can you imagine how shameful is that? <laughs> I've now, only been once, so. <laughs> oh, okay, good. I thought you were going to just turn the machine off right there. <laughs> no. But I, I, didn't, I was there for the Poetry of Resistance reading, um, so I was only going to be there for a day, and there was only one thing I wanted to do, and that was go find Langston Hughes' house. Mm. So I found his house. I sat on his stoop for about two hours mm. and read and talked to one of his neighbors and uh, but he's somebody too that I just returned to I just I can't imagine uh, life without him um, you wow. know the, the the work of Francisco Alarcón yes, uh, yes and lots of the folks who have been connected to the poetry of resistance book uh, Francisco's poetry has been a real gift he was a real gift 
to me. I met him a couple of times at the Split This Rock Festival here in D.C. Yeah. yeah. And there was a Floricanto here uh, uh, when AWP was here in D.C. This is four, five, six years ago now, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and actually, that was the first time we met uh, in person. We communicated through the Facebook page, the Poets Respond to SB 1070. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, Arizona. I was on that, too. So. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's so Francisco, Francisco's work has mattered a lot to me. Um, but those are some of my, yeah, I guess sort of Langston Hughes, well, I mean, going farther back, you know, Shakespeare and Yeats and Blake, and then Langston Hughes and um, and Martina Spada, Lucille Clifton, Emily Dickinson even, as, yes. as yeah. strange a creature as she was. Uh, her poetry is magnificent, and I love watching half a dozen you know, high school junior boys totally fall in love with her, you know, and think of her as this, this great psychiatrist and (laughs) which I think she is, you know, sort of this just magnificent searing ability to see the human condition uh, in these weird little four line stanzas, you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Why don't you read one more poem from your, from your new book, Ache? Okay. Uh, Oh, I always, I never know what to read, but let me, um, there's a, there's a whole section in ache of poems, um, in the voice of Nelson Mandela. Okay. Okay. So let me read, um, one that I think is kind of hopeful. And I just, I just love this. I love this poem. Maybe you're not supposed to say that about your own poems, but I don't know. (laughs) It's fine. Nelson Mandela speaks to Trayvon Martin. I walk down Fox street in Johannesburg at dawn. A light rain darkens my shoes. They scrape against the small stones. I'm standing in the doorway when I see you across the street, on the corner, looking at me. You wear no hood today. You smile and walk toward me. I smile and wait for you. The day begins here. Coffee and tea stands push back their canvas covers. A whistle sings from the train station. Your arms swing at your sides like only a teenage boy's arms can swing. You look like you might open your mouth to sing. There is no SUV in sight. I am not sure how to greet you. So I look at your wet, grass-stained shoes, then back at your 17-year-old face. I say, come in. Get out of the rain. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino here 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at KKUP.org. This show is Out of Our Minds. It's the second longest running poetry radio show in America, and it's hosted here on KKUP. Um, and... You know, that doesn't really happen. Having a poetry radio show every week, one hour dedicated to poetry, um, doesn't really happen in the world today, but it happens here at KKUP, and you can be part of that. You know, KKUP doesn't, we don't uh, get grant money, we don't get corporate money. Uh, we run off of the goodness of everybody's hearts <laughs> and um, and whatever you have in your, in your pocketbook that you can, uh, you know, toss our way. So if you want to support the second longest running poetry radio show in America and you like what you heard tonight and tonight you heard Joseph Ross who is an award-winning poet and a teacher over in Washington DC if you like hearing this and you like listening to the show every week um, you should really become a member you can become a member by going to kkup.org and um, clicking on the link that says become a member or you can give us a call here in the studio I'm usually here until about 9:30, working on the archive and getting my show up on podcast and on SoundCloud and all of that good stuff. Um, So you can give us a call here at the studio and I'll happily answer the phone and take your pledge if you want to pledge. Also, there's going to be a reggae marathon. I believe that's this weekend, July 15th, starting at 6 p.m. until Sunday at midnight. So if you like reggae, you know, listen in. Um, so that was Joseph Ross and next is going to be Joe Soja, um, with the ethnic connection, but I'm going to play just on the way out. I'm going to play a poem by Langston Hughes. So, um, have a nice week and hopefully you listen in next week. This is the Negro Speaks of Rivers. 
one of my earliest poems written in 1920, just after I came out of high school. The way this poem came to be written was that I was going to Mexico to visit my father, who lived in Mexico City, and on the train going across the Mississippi River, just outside St. Louis, I looked out the window and I saw this great muddy river flowing down toward the heart of the south, and I began to think about what this river had meant to the Negro people, how, in a sense, our history was linked to this river, how in slavery time, my grandmother told me that